You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, if you guys are new here, because I see a few people I don't think I've ever seen before, how are you? You don't have to say anything back, it's all right. Uh, my name is Dave, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Revolution. We're glad you guys are here with us. we got some... Visitors from Texas who think they're better than us because everything's better in Texas, apparently. I don't understand how that works. Whatever. We're glad you guys are here. We're glad you're here. Um, But yeah, so we are starting a new series this evening I'm pretty excited for. We've been planning on doing this for a little while now. We are going to be walking through the book of 1 John. Look at that lovely graphic made by Katie Reed, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Yeah, we're going to be going through the book of 1 John, and I don't have a title for this series. I couldn't come up with anything cool, uh, mainly because Joe Thorne had already used Doctrine and Devotion. Um, And I know it's a super inside joke. You guys need to go look up Joe Thorne. He's a way better preacher than me. He's way smarter. Um, Yeah, that's what he named his series on 1 John. And no, I'm not just trying to copy him, although I look like him. Um, yeah, look him up, seriously. If you Google Joe Thorne, it's like me in 20 years. Um, but anyway, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 John for the next eight or nine months. Um, it is five chapters long, so we're really, really, really going to dig into this. There's a couple of sermons we're going to do that are going to be like split verses, like verse chapter 2, verse 3a. Right? There's going to be some stuff like that going on, so uh, pray for me, because uh, that, that's going to be really interesting. I've never dug this deep into a book before, uh, but pray for me and pray for the other men who are going to be uh, preaching alongside me in this. Uh, but anyway, so why First John? Right? After reading First John five or six times in the last few months, I thought this would be a really good book for us to look at. Um, something you need to know about John is John is not nearly as intensely theological as the Apostle Paul. Right? And what I mean by that is not that he doesn't teach sound doctrine, not that John doesn't care about theology, but John is not super complex and complicated in the doctrines that he teaches. Right? He's not as intense as Paul is um, and con- confusing as Paul is. Um, but John is profound, and he really does well to remind us the basics of the faith. Right? You could actually kind of look at this letter as a back-to-basics kind of deal. But the basics of the faith and their implications on the believer and how we live and how we treat one another and how we think. Right? So John lays down really solid doctrine for us and then calls us to a radical holiness, a radical obedience, and a radical love. Right? John lays down things in absolutes, in a lot of absolute terms whenever he writes. But I think this would really be a good thing for us to dwell on. Right? Not only our doctrine, but our practice. Right? Because in our church climate at Rev, if you've not been here for very long, maybe you don't know this, but if you've been here for a year or so, you can probably see this. Many of us tend to lean really heavy on the side of studying doctrine and studying theology. And that's not a problem. Right? I'm not here to rail against that. That is a fantastic quality that I wish was in more churches. Um, but sometimes, and I am chief amongst sinners on this, We can focus so much on doctrine that we forget to put into practice that which we have studied so much, right? We accumulate all this head knowledge, never put it into practice, which just relegates your religion to a cold, dead orthodoxy, and that's not what we're about. Um, But what's funny is the Apostle John will have absolutely none of that kind of know a lot and not do a lot in response. John absolutely will not have any of that because it's not consistent. Again, theology without practice is dead religion, and God absolutely demands a response whenever we learn something about him or something that he has done. So 1 John is really beautiful in its truths, right? Very basic in a lot of its truths, but it's also a really hard kick in the teeth, 
uh, whenever it comes to how we live and, and the response to those truths. And I'll just say, say a side note here. Christians love correction. Right? That's one unique uh, trademark of the people of God is we love correction. Like, don't you hear that preacher that just makes you feel like an inch tall? And like you, you're like, I am a wicked, dirty human being. And he just exposed it. And I can't wait to listen to this dude's next sermon. Right? Like, we, we love correction as believers because we love to be instructed in the ways pleasing to God. Right? So we love the book of 1 John. And my prayer for us is that we would all grow to have a more sincere love for God, for one another, and a love for sound teaching. Right? And then as a result of that, that we'd have a zeal for putting into practice what we see in the scripture. So that's our goal for this book. So you guys probably need to know a little bit of background on this before we can get jumping into the text. By the way, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or the Bible you have is hard to read, take one of those in the backs of the pews. The white ones are the English Standard Version. That's what we use. But it's going to be here on the projector as well. Um, but some background for you. All right, for 1 John, this book is really a letter, right? It's a letter from the Apostle John, and it's got some interesting qualities to it for it being a, a Greek letter. This letter is not signed. Right? There is actually no name of the author mentioned whatsoever. But the reason why we say it's the Apostle John, we have quite a few reasons. Um, one, it reads like the Gospel of John. Right? If you read the Gospel of John, then you read 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. It's, it's incredibly clear and apparent that this is the same uh, style, the same wordings, the same emphasis, or emphases sorry, that you see in the Gospel of John. So it reads like the Gospel of John, written by the disciple John. Church history has always affirmed that this was written by the Apostle John. And most conservative Bible scholars agree that this is the Apostle John. So fight me if you think this was not the Apostle John that wrote this, all right? Like, I'll take you out. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so this was written by John, and it was written uh, in the 90s, right? A.D. 90s. John was a really old man at this point, right? John was actually the only apostle... um, that we believe was not martyred for his faith. He actually died an old man. Um, So John would have been super old, probably like 70s, 80s. He's an old dude, and he's the last living apostle at this point. Everyone else has died but John, and he is soon to be exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. And just fun fact, Patmos is the island where John receives the revelation, right? The last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But during this time that Paul writes, or not Paul, see I'm going to do this a lot because I talk about Paul a lot. During this time whenever John writes this letter, there are some major problems going on in the church in Asia Minor, right? That's in Turkey. Um, So in Turkey there's some some problems going on. Uh, Major problem being that heretics have risen up in the church, just like Peter and Paul prophesied that they would. Right? The days are coming where you're not, people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll accumulate teachers for themselves that will tickle their ears. Right? And it's happening right then and there. It's happening today. So this is also, also uh, comfort us a little bit whenever we see heretics that have creeped up in the church. A lot of stuff you're going to see on TBN and, and junk like that. Um, just heretical garbage. Like Rob Bell just released a new book called What is the Bible? Which like the Babylon Bee said, it's not really a title. It's more like Rob Bell asking the question, no, seriously, what is the Bible? I don't know. Um, right, so stay away from that kind of junk. Um, but yeah, so there are heretics now and there were heretics in the first century, right? So it's not that everything has gone completely off the rails today. There were problems back then, right? So just keep, I think that's, that was really encouraging to me. Uh, but again, heretics had risen up in the churches in Asia Minor. And these men were teaching false doctrines, causing many believers to go apostate, right? It means to abandon the faith entirely and form heretical cults. Not churches, but cults. Because if you deviate from the teachings of the apostle, you don't have a church anymore. You have a cult. 
And John is responding to this. So from the letter, we can see some things that the heretics were teaching. Uh, I got three things. Again, there's a ton of debate on this. I'll give you some resources if you want to know more specifics. But big, broad brush strokes. Here's what they were teaching. First one, most important. They were teaching that Christ did not come in the flesh. It's a huge problem. Right? They, they did not believe that Christ was fully man. Um, they, they basically believed what was the beginning of a heresy that we call docetism, which the root word of that is a Greek word that means to appear or to seem. So they say, yes, Jesus seemed to be a man, but he never actually took on a flesh and blood body. Like, you know, those, uh, you know that picture you see in the Bible that is uh, not in the Bible, you see in like Bibles sometimes, the uh, walking in the sand picture along the beach. You see like two sets of prints, and then it turns into one, because that's where Jesus carried the person, is what it says. Um, they actually had a similar story to that. The Docetists did. It said that like, uh, like Peter is walking along with Jesus, walking down the, the shoreline, and, but he looks over and he sees only one set of footprints, and it's Peter's, which always makes me laugh whenever I think about that picture of the footprints in the sand, and I think of what the Docetists taught. I think it's funny, whatever. Um, but anyway, one of the problems with that is, if we're going to get into this, if Jesus did not take on a flesh and blood body, then there is no death of Christ, which means there is no substitution in the place of sinners. Right? So among other implications, that's a huge heresy. That's, a bad, that's bad. Uh, another thing they taught was that the flesh is bad. Right? Like literally, anything material, this is the beginning of what we call Gnosticism, anything material is bad, everything that is spiritual is good. And because of that, they taught that your flesh doesn't matter. Right? This body doesn't matter. So you can do with it whatever you want. You can be as sexually immoral as you want. You can get as drunk as you want. You can beat people. You can whatever. Because what you do in this body doesn't matter because it's your soul, your spirit that is pure. So you can sin all you want. Right? So that's a huge problem as well. It's another heresy they were teaching. Um, and then this one too. Again, this is Gnosticism. They, they were teaching that salvation is not by faith alone in Christ alone. But salvation comes by some kind of secret knowledge. Right, this secret knowledge that you can only get by being an initiate into their group. Right, you have to do this these ritualistic kind of things, or see some kind of, like they they claim that they would have visions from God, right, telling them that the apostles were wrong, that this was really like the truth over here. And, and again, so they believed they were saved by secret knowledge, which actually Gnosticism, the root word is gnosis, means knowledge in Greek. Um, but that made them elitists. Right? So they looked down on the unlearned, the uninitiated. So their love was absolutely corrupted. They had no love for people that weren't like them, that they, that they didn't agree with. And again, this all creeps into the church. So there's division on doctrine. People don't know what to believe about Christ. People don't know what to believe about the death of Christ. People are being, having an elitist attitude, not loving each other. And there's just rampant sin going on. Right? And John is writing to correct this utter nonsense. He's writing to teach sound doctrine concerning Christ. And push the believers on to greater obedience to God and love for one another. Not only that, but with so many people going apostate, with so many people leaving the church over these heresies, John wants believers to know what true Christianity is. Right? So keep that in mind. This is a huge theme of the letter. He wants us to know what the actual apostolic faith is. And not only that, he wants us to know who the true Christ is, which is what we're going to get into this evening. He wants us to know who Christ is. And also to have assurance that, that these believers are actually in the truth. That they're believing what has been taught from the beginning. So in this letter, we get a look at John's pastoral heart. Right? He doesn't write this as just a diatribe against the heretics. 
Um, he writes this to the believers, like a father to them, like a father talking to his kids, like, guys, just stay away from this. I'm not even really going to address what they're teaching. I'm more just going to tell you the truth. And you know if they deviate from what I'm telling you, that they're in error and that they don't know Christ. So John really shows a pastoral heart here. So this was given to the church then and for us now, and there is much for us to see and be reminded of. Again, I I would say that this first four verses we're going to look at is a lot of back-to-basics for us, but it's so, so good. So with that being said, I'm going to read the text, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to break this text into pieces. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father, please open our eyes to this text. Open the eyes of our hearts. Give us the eyes of faith to see clearly your Son in this text and the truths that John wanted us to know. Please do a work of grace here in the lives of the believers and any unbelievers that may be here present with us. God, let my words be exalting of Christ and point people to Jesus who died for sinners and was raised on the third day, the God-man. We love you. Spirit, please do a work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John starts this letter off with a bang. Right? Like, there is no greeting here, if you didn't notice. Like, Paul is usually like, the, like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, da 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 for like seven verses, because Paul didn't know how to be short and sweet. And like, to the Romans, right? Like, no, there's none of that here, which is really uncharacteristic of a Greek letter. Usually you start out declaring who you are and who you're writing to. John has no time for any of that. Right? He gets straight down to business. And what he begins with is a really uh, high and robust Christology. Right? What that, is, that just means doctrines about Jesus. Right? Like the study of Jesus, Christology, Christology. Um, so he starts with a really high view of Christ. And uh, I, I like how he starts out in uh, verse 1, just the first line, that which was from the beginning. Right? So he's saying, I'm not telling you guys anything new. Right? You should already know this because you've already received teaching from the apostles. I'm not coming to you with any kind of new doctrine like these heretics are, but I'm coming to you with the cornerstone of our faith. My introduction is telling you who Jesus is. Right, so he just starts off with a bang. So again, most of this is going to be old information for most of us. Things that we tend to take for granted. But hear me on this. If God uh, ordained and, and, and through his Holy Spirit inspired men to write this down, it is worth, for us, worth us looking at again and again and again and again, no matter how basic it may seem to us. So we're going to look at it again. Right? We're going to preach the text. The first thing in this robust Christology that John has, is, is that Jesus is God. Right? And you're sitting back there, uh, yeah, Dave, right? Jesus is God. And I get that because in the second bit of verse 2, he refers to Jesus as the eternal life. Right? This whole introduction, by the way, is about Jesus, the word of life, the one who was with the Father in the beginning, 
right? Having fellowship with the Father and the Son. This whole beginning part is about Jesus. Right? So Jesus is God. That's the first point that I think John wants us to see. He refers to, to Jesus, this word of life, as the eternal life. He says he wants us to come into fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Which is interesting how, he, how he's wording that. Be in fellowship with the Father and with his Son. He's putting Jesus Christ and the Father on the same level. Right? He's saying you must have fellowship with both. One is not more important than the other. He's putting them on the exact same ground uh, in deity. So when we say, and this is a really good distinction to make because we're getting into Trinitarian doctrine here, so we're on very, very, very holy ground. Um, When we say Jesus is God, what we do not mean is that Jesus is the Father. That is not what we mean whenever we say that. That is a heresy called modalism, right? That is heresy. Like all those little ways that we were taught the Trinity growing up with like water, like, yeah, it's like a solid liquid into gas. It can't be all three at the same time, though, can it? It's like saying one thing turns into another. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm getting off on a tangent. Lord, help me. Um, But when we say Jesus is God, we don't mean that Jesus is the Father. Jesus is a distinct person from the Father and is a distinct person from the Spirit. Right? We believe in one God, united in essence, but three in persons. Make sense? Not three gods, not a third God, a third God, a third God. One God, each person possessing full divinity. That's what we mean by this. So Jesus is God. What we're actually saying in that statement is that Jesus has the essence of God. Uh, I heard a British guy, because I like how British people use the word stuff. He says he had the stuff of divinity, Right? That's what Jesus has, the stuff of divinity. He is divine. He possesses divinity in his person. He has, what we're getting at is he has the divine nature that is unique to God alone that cannot be transferred to a mere creation. Right, so Jesus, the eternal life. Right, the one who's put on level with the Father. Eternal life, again, referencing the fact that he has no beginning. You get me on that? God is uncreated. He's saying this Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end, which is a unique quality of God. And Jesus possesses divinity fully. Again, not partially. He's not a third God, and it takes three members of the Trinity to make one God. No, he's fully God. Not partially, fully. John affirms this view in his gospel. We're just going to blast through some text real quick. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God. God, or with the Father, and the word was God. Actually, the, the words for God that we translate into English are actually different in Greek, so he's making a distinction. It was with one thing and was another thing. You see what I'm saying? So he possesses divinity and was with the Father. Not only does John affirm this again, but Jesus Christ himself claimed to be divine. In John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58, he's having an argument or a discussion where Jesus just handles these fools. Um, with the Pharisees. And it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and, you have, se- and have you seen Abraham? Right? Say, so no, Abraham's long time before Jesus was born. He said, You're not even 50. What are you talking about? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Which is a direct reference back to Exodus 3 where Moses says, Who do I tell the Israelites sent me? Jesus, or, and, and Yahweh says, Tell them I am sent you. So Jesus is declaring his divinity. Before Abraham was, not I was, but I am. All right, and then it goes on to say they pick up stones to try to kill him because they knew he was calling himself God there. So they understood it. 
Jesus says it himself. Uh, another thing Jesus did that proclaims his divinity is in John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. All right, he, did, he healed someone on the Sabbath, and the Jews were very upset. He says, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. By the way, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was breaking the Pharisees' Sabbath laws that weren't found in the Bible. Right? So they were mad. He says, my father works. Okay, so, and then the Jews had this idea that uh, God was obviously at work on the Sabbath because God is holding all things together and keeping all things in order. And Jesus says, he's working and so am I. But all of creation is meant to rest on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, it's okay for me to work on the Sabbath. Right? Again, clear-cut claim to divinity that they saw because they wanted to kill him. Jesus also, in Matthew 9, 2, he forgives sins. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Who but God can forgive sin? Jesus, Jesus claims to have the ability to forgive sin. And then for me, a clincher, John chapter 20. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right? So Thomas sees the resurrected Christ and he feels the holes in his hand and the wound in his side. And he drops to his knees and he looks at Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Have you believed because you've seen? He's saying, Yes, you are right in calling me your Lord and your God. Furthermore, if he wasn't referring to Jesus as God in that passage, then he was blaspheming. Right? He was taking the Lord's name in vain if he wasn't talking to Jesus just then. And Jesus, being the greatest rabbi who ever lived, should have rebuked him for that, unless he was indeed worshiping Jesus rightfully. Um, that was always something that makes me laugh whenever you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, who try to tell you that he was just exclaiming, my God. And it's like, also oh, he blasphemed in front of Jesus. And Jesus didn't say anything back. Um, whatever. Um, but this truth about the divinity of Jesus is ridiculously important to us. right? But it's also, it seems to be a given for a lot of us, that we don't stand in awe of our God. But it's really incredibly important that we know this, that Jesus Christ is indeed God, and not only that, but that we know how to defend it. And I say that because the heretics are still among us, not here at Rev, Um, at least not that I know of, I'm watching you. Um, But the heretics are still among us, right? I can take you down actually to where our our friend Dave and his soon-to-be wife Maria lives, and right down the street near Rosemount, there's a Jehovah's Witness, um, quote, church, and then a Mormon church. Yeah, like apparently the heretics just all like to team up together and live in the same spot because they're like, we're safe here, guys. Like the Baptists won't come for us. Um, right? But again, so right down the road, you have people who deny the divinity of Christ, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then people who claim that there are multiple gods and not one god, the Mormons. Right? And listen, they will come around. Right? This is the most infamous noise, infamous noise in the world. Saturday morning, there's the J-dubs right at your door, man. Ah. Uh. Have you seen that meme online? It's like the Jehovah's Witness uh, training center, and it's like in Lowe's where all the doors are. (laughs) Yeah, anyway. Um, But yeah, so they're going to come around, and they're going to try to pervert the gospel whenever they come around. And they're going to try to lead you astray into heresies that will send you to hell. You must know that Christ is God. You must know how to defend it. You must know where it is in the scripture. John wants us to know. He wants us to be able to spot a false Christ and stay away from it. Because he's a good pastor. The second thing 
The second part of his Christology that we see in these verses is he proclaims that Christ is the life, right? Not as compared to a life, right? Jesus is the life. In verse 1, he he calls him the word of life. He says, I write to you proclaiming things concerning the word of life. Again, in verse 2, he calls him the eternal life. John loves to say that Jesus is the source of life. It's a very John thing to do. In in John chapter 1, verse 4 in the gospel, he says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. I think what John is getting at is there is genuine life in Christ in multiple ways. So first, being God, Jesus is the source of all natural life. Like the text that Stephen uh, read to us in the beginning before before we sang our first song. Right? Through him was everything made. Right? And nothing that was made um, exists apart from him. Right? I'm paraphrasing heavily there because I don't have that committed to memory. But everything was made through Christ. So being God, the source of all natural life comes from him as the creator. And not only that, John wants us to know that he is the source of all true life. Right? And we can see this all throughout the scriptures, that life apart from knowing Christ and following him and being in fellowship with the living God is a mere shadow of what life should be. You may have money, you may have cars, you may have friends, you may have a hot spouse, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're after, it's a shadow of what Christ offers his people. We were created to know God. We were created for the glory of God. Apart from knowing the life, we have no true life. We have a mere shadow trying to fulfill ourselves with things that cannot satisfy And not only that, not only is he the source of true life in the here and now, but he is the giver of eternal life, right? He is is the eternal life itself. He's the one who gives us eternal life by faith in his person and work. He says, come to me, believe that I have saved you, believe that I have taken your wrath in your place, fulfilled the law in your place, and you receive eternal life, cost you nothing, and I give it freely to any who come and believe on me. He's the giver of eternal life. Jesus Christ calls himself the life. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, he is the life, not a life, not one of many lives to be had. He is the life. He is the only way to the Father. John wants us to see that because the Christ he proclaims in the introduction, right, the, the Christ that the apostles had always proclaimed is the only eternal life-giving Christ. If you, what I'm getting at, we're going to talk about this later. If you get Christ wrong, you don't have eternal life. If you don't have a right view of Christ, you don't know God. John wants us to see that, that this Christ is the only way to the Father. There is no life outside of this specific Christ and no hope apart from Him. Because this Christ is the one who brings salvation to all who believe And it's this Christ who brings wrath and death and damnation upon all who reject Him. Christ, in John's Gospel in chapter 6, He says, I have been given the authority to judge, and I will judge at the end. He is the only way, the only hope, the only life. And thirdly, part of John's Christology, and this is amazing, this God and life became a man. Right? Verse Two, in two different spots, it says, the life was made manifest, right? Which means revealed, which carries a double meaning. We'll get into that. But this life was made manifest. It appeared. Verse 1, he says, we're proclaiming what we have heard, what we have seen. 
what we have touched with our own hands, what we have looked upon with our own eyes. This God took on flesh. So Jesus Christ, God Himself, became fully human. This is what we call the miracle of the incarnation. God became a man. And this is astounding. Please do not take this for granted or think that this is something we should only talk about during Advent. This is amazing. Just think about this for a second. The transcendent, far above us, can't touch him. The transcendent, holy, perfect, sinless, eternal, uncreated, immortal God condescended and became a mortal man. We don't have words for that. And by the way, he still remained, he retained his divinity. That's why we read that confession in the beginning. Not one nature, but two natures. Fully God, fully man, two natures in Christ. But I love juxtaposing some stuff, right? Whenever we think about the incarnation. I think this will really uh, put into perspective how humble that the Lord Jesus Christ is and how amazing the incarnation is, right? So maybe you've heard these things before, but, but these are beautiful. Just think about this for a second. The one who never sleeps becomes a sleeping child in his mother's arms. The one who created the oceans on the cross cries out, I thirst. The one who causes the plants to grow for food becomes hungry. The one who is supreme in riches becomes poor. And then finally, the author of life itself, the life, the eternal life, dies. I should put in perspective the love and humility of Christ. In, in the incarnation. Because he did all of this for the sake of ruined sinners. And he didn't have to. That he would condescend to become a man. To become like us in every respect. But Christ becoming fully human is a central point of the gospel. Right? Consider this. Adam, back to Genesis, Adam was our representative and he sinned, right? He ate the fruit that he wasn't supposed to. He fell into sin, and we sinned with him, is what Paul says in Romans 5. So we fell too, because he represented us in his failure. So if we're in Adam, we die. If we're in Adam, we're in our sin, and we are going to merit the wrath of God. So that means we need a new representative. And only man can represent man. Only man can represent man before God. Think about Moses. He goes on behalf of Israel to Yahweh. Right? Because man represents other men. Only a man can do that. So if Jesus Christ did not become fully human in every single regard, then he could not obey the law and suffer the penalty of breaking that law in the place of sinners. If he wasn't fully man, there is no atonement. The Apostle Paul expounds on this in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, So one act of righteousness leads to justification, right standing with God, and life for all men. That's Jesus. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's getting a new representative, a new head. So Jesus must be fully God and fully man in order to save sinners. Don't ever deny that. I know if you're like me, you tend to lean and think of Jesus only in the divine terms. But if he is not man, there is no gospel and we're all damned. But thank God he is man and he redeemed 
the human nature. But John starts out with so much foundational teaching because it was Christ who was under attack from the heretics. But I love this about John. I love how John, I like how he backs up what he's teaching us about Jesus. Again, we said this in the beginning. Verse 1, first line, that which was from the beginning. We have always taught this. This is nothing new. So I just want to make a side note here, just real quick. Um, if it's new, it's heresy. <laughs> All right? Like, in the realm of, like, the church, doctrine, theology, Christ, anything to do with the living God whatsoever, or His Word, because the Scriptures are under attack, just huge since the 1800s, um, anything to do with that. If it's a new thought that you can't find being taught from the apostles, it's damning. It's heresy. Stay away from it. If it's new, it's bad. And I know I sound like an old man whenever I say that, but that's the truth. That's what John is telling us here. This is nothing new. I'm telling you what we have always taught. The apostolic gospel has not changed. It's nothing new. And also, a side note, and I feel a moral obligation to tell you guys this, um, just from some of the junk going on uh, around here. Um, The we in that passage, right? That which we have heard, right? That we proclaim. That is the apostles, That we is the apostolic circle. So, just real quick, apostleship, here's what it takes to be an apostle, right? It's an official office within the church. You have to have seen the resurrected Christ, been taught by Christ personally, and commissioned by Christ personally to be an apostle. John was the last one. All the other ones were dead, right? The Apostle Paul died before John, but the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says, And lastly, Christ appeared to me as one untimely born. Right? Meaning Christ appeared to me, and I'm the last one. Right? And he died before John. John dies last. John's the last apostle. And the reason why I say that is because there are a few loons in Scioto County that are going around and saying that they're apostles. No, they're not. They've never seen Christ. They were not commissioned by Christ to be an apostle. They never saw his resurrected body, and they were not taught personally by Christ. I'm just throwing that out there. People can say that it's a lowercase a apostle as opposed to a capital A apostle. It doesn't matter, and it's going to shake out badly at some point, right? Because they're going to claim to have some kind of authority that they don't have. Because apostles have the authority to write scripture. The apostles have the authority to... Anything that they say concerning doctrine, concerning Christ, concerning anything to do with the living God, is absolutely inerrant. That's what an apostle does. There aren't any more of them. Right, so just, I know maybe I just got up on my soapbox for that. Just, there are people, there are seriously some people around here. Stay away from that. If you hear someone saying that they're an apostle, run. Just run. Tell me who they were. So I'll go talk to them. Tell them to stay away from you. Um, anyhow, so yeah, I had to do that real quick. Uh, again, just kind of felt morally obligated. But John then goes on, uh, again, he's, he's backing up his claim, right? We have always taught this to you guys. And then he goes on to declare that he and all the apostles, that we were eyewitnesses. Right? He says, what we heard. So John heard. Like, hey, hey guys, you know the Sermon on the Mount? I can see John thinking this. Yeah, I was there. Right? Whenever Jesus went toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and taught them what was up, I was there. I heard him teach myself. He says, that which we have seen. Right? I saw his miracles. I was there when he raised the girl from the dead. I followed him for three and a half years. I was there when he died on the cross. I was standing right in front of him. I was there whenever he was on trial before Caiaphas and Annas. I was there when he was resurrected and I touched him. Right? He says, that which we have touched with our own hands. I've seen his physical body. I've touched it. I've kissed his cheek. I've embraced him. I've seen his resurrected body. This is beautiful. They were there. This is a historical fact. 
They beheld Jesus. And because of that, they were his witnesses. In, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them, You will be my witnesses. Something unique to them that they would be. Not that we can't be witnesses for Christ as well, but not in the way that John could be a witness. I was there. So hear me on this. John did not have a vision of Jesus. John had no spiritual awakening of the truth. John did not go into a cave like Muhammad and make this stuff up. Right? None of that. John, along with 12 other disciples, saw, heard, and touched Jesus. This is amazing. Like, think about this. What confidence, that, like, what confidence we have in this testimony. John was there. And John gives us firsthand, God, God decides to give us firsthand testimony of this truth. Because he wants us to know. And furthermore, John had no reason to lie. There was nothing earthly gained from John's preaching this Christ. He suffered. He was poor. He was eventually exiled to an island where he died a lonely old man for preaching this Christ and this gospel. He didn't gain anything. He has no reason to lie about what he has seen and heard and touched. He only gained suffering on this earth. But he knows what he saw. So why then does John teach this? Why does he suffer? Why does he take the time to write and preach about this Jesus? Verse 4 tells us, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So again, that hour is the apostolic circle. And John is writing on behalf of all the apostles so that his joy might be full. That he might have fullness of joy. And I first read that and I thought, man, that's kind of a selfish motive. Right? I'm writing so that I might have joy. That we might have joy. But verse 3, I think, tells us what John's joy is. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with God. That's John's joy. That we would have fellowship with God and His Son. That we would have fellowship with God through and by His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the joy of the apostles. That's what they want us to enter into. That's why He suffered. That's why He would proclaim this specific Christ. We want you to know God. The only God. And this is the only way to know Him is through His Son. We must get this right. We, we, it's a joy to see people come to the truth. That's John's thinking here. He has a pastor's heart. He wants to see the church walk in truth. He wants to see them know the living God. He wants to see them be in intimate communion with the only God that exists, that comes by faith in the Son. He wants us to be free from error and walk in love for God. This is his entire, this is his entire purpose for writing. Again, it's his joy to see people in fellowship with God. He's a good pastor. He's a good pastor to us. But John has laid out a lot of doctrine for us. He's laid out some solid credentials. He's laid out the hope of joy for us in knowing this God. But what can we take away? I'll be as quick as I can. I know I've been up here for a while. I have four things that I think we should take from this. The first is this. Doctrine matters. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, the Calvinist gets up on a soapbox and starts talking about doctrine matters, of course. Yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, I deal with it. Uh, doctrine matters. Right? We live in a religious climate in the West, right? in America especially, that does not like doctrine. How many times have you heard this? Doctrine divides, so I don't want anything to do with it. Or, I don't really think much of this stuff matters. Let's just all love Jesus. Right? You guys hear this kind of nonsense all the time. 
but over and against those kinds of sentiments, John proclaims a specific Jesus, doesn't he? He proclaims some very, very specific doctrines about the true Christ. He proclaims some specific doctrines about other things as well. But he does so because doctrine matters. And the reason why I say that is because if you have a false or wrong Christ, you have a false God that cannot save. This is why doctrine matters. If you get Christ wrong, you got nothing. Later on, John's going to tell us, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Not a Son, not a Christ, but only one Christ. And if you don't have that one, you're damned. So doctrine is one of the biggest reasons that John takes up the pen and writes, because it matters. So enough of this doctrine divides nonsense. Doctrine unites people. It unites us with a common Lord, a common faith, a common message. Heresy is what divides the church. Not doctrine. Heresy divides the church. Second, in a world that claims... Rather, in a world that says a claim to exclusive truth is arrogant. Right? You ever dealt with that? You're arrogant. How dare you say there is only one God and only one way to know Him? If you haven't, try evangelizing on the college campus. You'll hear that one a lot. In a culture that says that, we defiantly proclaim the life. In utter defiance to what they say, there is one God. And there is one way to God. There are not multiple ways. There are not multiple Christs. There is one way to God through the Christ. John says that he proclaims these things because he wants us to have fellowship with him. And by extension, fellowship with God. So the Christ the apostles knew and proclaimed is the only way to that fellowship. And we, believers, have fellowship with the apostles and God because we adhere to their teachings. Therefore, we declare the same exclusivity. We can look everyone in the world in the face and say, if you don't have fellowship with us on this, then you don't know God. If we are not united around the same Christ, you do not know God. If we're not united around the same God, you don't know God. That's not arrogant. Right? That's just the nature of truth. Truth is exclusive. It's just the law of non-contradiction. If you want to study philosophy, Google that. Thirdly, John says that we proclaim the word of life. What they're proclaiming is concerning the word of life. In verse 2, this is really interesting. Verse 2 tells us that the life is a person. I don't believe the word of life is a reference to Jesus. I believe the word of life, or rather, the word of life is the message Sorry, I misspoke. The word of life is the message. But then he goes on to tell us what the life is. So the message itself is a person. The message itself is Jesus. So the interesting thing to consider is as believers, we proclaim a message. But the message is a person. We proclaim a person. We proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. So as believers, we don't proclaim mere ethics or mere morality We don't proclaim a mere philosophy or personal revelation. Rather, we proclaim the person and work of the Son of God. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ who entered into time and space, into human history and took on flesh. The Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly in the place of sinners. 
in order to be our representative and who suffered its penalty as a substitute for all who would believe in him. That's what we proclaim. Not mere ethics, not a philosophy. We proclaim what Christ has done and who he is. Our entire message is all about Jesus Christ. And we have nothing to say apart from him. So as you're dwelling on how to talk to people, proclaim Jesus to them. Don't tell them mere ethics or mere morality. Don't tell them mere doctrine. We proclaim a person to the world. Just like John proclaimed him to us. And then this last one. And this one's really dear to me. And this was really, really sweet for me to reflect on this week. And it's near and dear to me. If you are a former atheist like I am, or you wrestle with unbelief, serious unbelief from time to time, like crisis of faith kind of unbelief. Is this true? Did Christ really come? Was he really crucified? Was he really raised from the dead? Is he actually God? If you're someone that wrestles with those kinds of things, this truth is sweet because it really happened. It really happened. Verse 1, he says, That which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched with our own hands, that which we have beheld. He's an eyewitness. John saw it. This is a historical fact. This is not mere conjecture about a story. John was there. This is a fact rooted in history. And we are the only religion that can say that. It's a historical fact. But John and the apostles didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God just because they witnessed it. Right? Many people witnessed the same exact things and yet refused to believe on Christ. Like Judas. He was right there with them. It's not just because they saw. Here's why they believed. Matthew 16, verses 15 through 17. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's another name for Simon, another name for Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Hear me on this. This is, this is beautiful. God revealed who Christ was to them. Christ, God revealed Christ to John. He was made manifest. Like I said, that word means revealed. It doesn't mean just merely that he was made flesh, but that who he was was revealed to these men. Who he truly was was revealed. God made them see that what they were witnessing was God in the flesh come to save sinners. And God the Holy Spirit has worked the exact same revelation to us if you're a believer. You don't believe this merely because John said so. You don't merely believe this because your parents taught you to believe this. You don't merely believe this because I've gotten up here and told you to believe this. If you're a believer, if your faith rests on Christ for your salvation, you believe this because God revealed this to you. Not because of history. For all the facts that we can show the unbeliever. Not because of your own choice to just believe this because you were just going to believe it. God revealed this to you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father did. This is beautiful truth. The one who said, let there be light, has spoken light into our hearts that we might see Christ. And God has given us the eyes of faith so that we can see what John saw as we read John's witness and proclamation of Christ. He's given us the eye of faith. The true Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, the eternal life, 
the Savior of the world has been revealed to us. May we hold tightly to him and know him and make him known. And may we proclaim this Christ unapologetically to the world as John has proclaimed him to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Christ. We did not deserve him. We deserve nothing but damnation. We deserve nothing but your eternal wrath. And yet you sent the Christ, God made flesh, the God-man, the eternal life to save ruined sinners. God, thank you for that. God, you're kind to us to give us such a great eyewitness account from John that on two accounts, the Holy Spirit attesting to us who your son was and John's eyewitness account, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt who Jesus is. Father, let us hold tightly to this Christ and rest in his person and work alone and proclaim him to the nations. God, we praise you and we thank you. Please open our eyes more and more to who Jesus is every day and keep us in your grace. We thank you and we worship you. All glory be to you. In Christ's name, amen.